0: Praying. Lord, you're big and you love us. And that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Polished, rich, attractive. Those three attributes Possessing those three attributes has always brought attention but arguably never more than now. Every technological advance seems to make it even easier for the polished, the rich, and the attractive to enlarge their following. You can draw a pretty straight line, technologically speaking, from how uh, television helped John F. Kennedy win the presidency Fifty years ago, as those debates were televised, to how Cristiano Ronaldo today, with his 318 million Instagram followers, can make $1.6 million per post. We gravitate toward the polished, the rich, and the attractive, and technology now just helps us find and follow them. That's a reality that affects church life, too. If you're newer to North Sub, say maybe you had started attending sometime in the last two years since COVID started, chances are you watched video to see what you thought of this place before you even visited. I'd do the same if I was moving to a new area and checking out churches. Now that every church has video, that's just what people do. But what sort of churches, what sort of pastors, does that trend advantage, so to speak? Of course, it's those who are polished, rich attractive, right? As a quick aside, we here at North Sub, we're aware of this human tendency to gravitate toward the polished, the rich, and the attractive, and so we actively try to work against it, actually, in at least three areas. One is in our technology. We've, we've made a conscious decision to rely on volunteers for our tech and social media work. Thank you to those volunteers who work so hard at that, and not to make the investment that it would require for us to upgrade our live stream video quality and uh, beyond what it is now the reason for that is that we believe that it would be a mistake to redirect resources away from the flesh and blood work that's happening in our midst which biblically we believe ought to be the priority toward the all too alluring vision of creating this polished internet brand secondly in our preaching if you've been here you know that i rarely swing for the fences, so to speak, in my sermons. Uh, Instead, I train the other pastors and interns on our preaching team to join me in aiming for base hits. That's the language that we use together. To to change the analogy for the moment, if you're not a baseball person, we preachers see ourselves as the mail carriers who are bringing to you a love letter from the God of the universe. And we kind of think it would be the greatest tragedy if you missed out on relationship with the letter writer because you fell in love with the mailman. In other words, our goal in our preaching is not for you to leave impressed by our theatrical excellence or for you to leave blown away by the cleverness of our rhetoric, but rather for you to walk out of here knowing God's greatness and love a little bit more, for you to walk out of here loving his word a little bit more and maybe just a little better equipped to read and understand his love letter for yourself. Third way that we're resisting this urge is in our service planning. You may have noticed that unlike some churches, those we invite up on the stage aren't always the young physically fit folks with fashion sense. Although I would put Mike Lapata's Hawaiian shirt collection up against anybody in the state of Illinois at least, right? Yes, give give it up for that. The prayers offered up by members of this congregation—they're not micromanaged. So every once in a while, one of us accidentally prays something a little cringy. I've done that. And like, mm, why did I just say? That it's all just a little messy, right? I've opened a sermon holding an infant before because Sarah was chasing the toddler somewhere. Right? It, here's what I'm trying to say: We are trying to give God our best on Sunday mornings, but polished, rich, attractive are not our priorities. For some of you, that's exactly what has appealed to you uh, about this congregation. You've been hurt, maybe, at polished, rich, attractive churches where people were given a platform, maybe because of those outward qualities, despite the fact that their character didn't keep pace with their charisma, and you bear the scars from that. We are honored, if that's you, that you've given us a chance, and we we want you to help us, actually, continue to prioritize what God prioritizes instead of what the world prioritizes. That effort notwithstanding, the fact remains that for most of us, when we hear the news that God has sent a savior, our tendency is still to go looking for him among the polished, the rich, the attractive. Where else would he be? But in our short time together in scripture today, we're going to see that's not where we find him. Here again is the sermon series, Why Jesus? If this is the first time you've been able to join us for an Advent service this year, we're spending Advent this year asking the question, why Jesus? I mean, there are many other would-be saviors and religious figures that have come and gone throughout world history. What makes Jesus any different from them? And what justifies the historic claim of Christianity that the baby born on that first Christmas is actually the savior of the whole world? In other words... What right does Jesus have to claim that the fate of every human being rests on their relationship with him? So in order to address those sorts of questions, we've been taking a break from our usual practice of working consecutively through books of the Bible. And in the previous two weeks of Advent, we've asked the questions, Why a human savior? Why couldn't God have saved us remotely from heaven without going through the trouble to take on flesh? We asked, Why a divine savior? Ebby preached so wonderfully on that last week. Why wouldn't a particularly exemplary human be qualified to save us? Next week, we'll look at why a royal savior. But this week, we are asking the question, in light of the fact that the savior God sent was not polished, not rich, not attractive. Why a lowly savior? This will just be a short sermon, but we're going to see three ways. Our lowly savior might not match our expectations. And then we'll close with five implications of such a lowly savior. So first, the three ways that our lowly savior might not match our expectations. He's not polished, not rich, not attractive. First, his birth. It's messy, not polished. Let's take a look, if you would, with me at Luke 2.7. It's up on the screen. You're familiar with this verse probably. And she, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. Because there was no place for them, in the inn or in the guest room, some translations have. Lest we picture here a rustic barnyard with string lights dangling as a stork drops off baby Jesus while Joseph leans back in his recliner and tells Alexis to put on Michael Buble's Christmas album, we're reminded here that the birth of Jesus is messy. Uh, Every mom here knows How messy childbirth is, even under the most comfortable circumstances, as does every dad who has been called upon in the birthing room to grab hold of a leg while mom pushes. There's nothing hallmark worthy about it. The birth of Mary's firstborn is no exception. This particular birth seems to have taken place in a room where animals were kept. And if you ever cleaned a stable, your nostrils might be filling with that smell, even as you reread this verse. And you don't have to be well-versed in ancient Near Eastern culture to know that a feeding trough, this is, this is not a place where a mom would normally hope to lay her baby. Bottom line, this isn't a sanitized scene. Right? Mary didn't give Joseph permission to post these pictures on social media. The Savior's birth is messy, not polished. Secondly, his socioeconomic status, poor, not rich. Take a look at this with me later in Luke 2. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Maybe those verses are also familiar to you, but here's what you may not have noticed. That... A pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons, is not actually the required sacrifice according to the law of the Hebrew Bible. Do you know that? Take a look at the law itself with me. Leviticus 12, verses 6 through 8. Here's what it said back in the Hebrew Bible. And when the days of her purifying are completed, whether for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a lamb, a year old, for a burnt offering. And then the other one's a pigeon or turtle dove, a pigeon or turtle dove for a sin offering. And he shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement for her, then she'll she'll be clean from the flow of her blood. This is the law for her who bears a child, either male or female. See that there? The law says to bring a lamb and a turtle dove or pigeon. But there's a provision if you're poor. That's the next verse. If she cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. One for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. You pick up the inference there being made from all this? Right. At the time of the Savior's birth, Jesus' mom and dad, they're too poor to afford the lamb for a sin offering. Uh, for, for the standard offering. Now, is it possible that they came into more comfortable lifestyle in subsequent years? Maybe. But considering that most scholars think Joseph died sometime while Jesus was growing up, There isn't much reason to think Jesus ever experienced a life of plenty in his human family. In other words, when God sent a Savior, that Savior was of modest means, not rich. Third, his physical features, plain not attractive. The scripture we're about to read was actually written 700 years before Jesus, but because it's part of the passage that was read earlier in this service, that maybe more than any other from the Hebrew Bible, Uh, is the place where Christians have found the Savior in what we call the Old Testament. Uh, 2,000 years of Christians have seen these verses fulfilled in Jesus. Let's look at it again, Isaiah 53, 1 through 3. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, that's the servant of the Lord in this context, uh, grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. It says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. See that there? When Hollywood tries to portray Jesus, uh, sometimes they cast these ripped six-three dudes with six packs and smooth faces and piercing blue eyes and locks gently flowing over their ears. Not what Jesus looked like. Right. Now, I don't know that we can go so far as to say uh, what I heard one preacher say once is that Jesus was ugly. I don't know that that can be justified. But we're, we're explicitly told here that there's nothing about the, physical, the Savior's physical appearance that uh, would have drawn us to him. The Savior God sends is not particularly attractive. Right. So, polished, rich, attractive, that's what our world looks for in somebody important. Yet, Jesus seems to have had zero of the three. It's crazy, right? But it's even more crazy, We remember, that just nine months before being laid in the manger, he had three of the three. As the divine son of God dwelling in unapproachable light. This is a great time of year to remind ourselves of that 3 for 3 to 0 for 3 downward journey of the Son of God. Maybe nowhere captured better than Philippians 2, where the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus Christ started out at the highest of high and descended to the lowest of low. Let's look at that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You want to talk about polished, impressive? Here's somebody who was in the form of God, who had equality with God, even though he chose not to grasp hold of it. He came from walking gleaming streets of gold and hearing harmonious angel choruses 24-7, utter perfection in every way. That's what he came from. You want to talk about rich? Here's somebody who owned the cattle on a thousand hills, who held the universe in the palm of his hand, who never had a single need, much less a need that he lacked the resources to meet. You want to talk about attractive? On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter got to see a glimpse of the glory that Jesus had possessed before going incognito as a human being. And Peter's so awestruck by the beauty of his gleaming Savior that nonsense starts coming out of his mouth. He doesn't know what to say. Jesus was attractive, the personification of beauty. He was rich, nobody wealthier in the whole universe. He was polished, nobody more put together than him. Now, here he is in Luke 2 messy, poor, plain, and born to die. A guy named R.G. Lee reflects on it like this What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place at the cross. And he goes on to say, that in Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature, woman. But his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends. Do you know he did that for you? He went through all this trouble. Because he loved you. And he knew that no matter how hard you tried, you'd never be able to make your way to him. Who else has ever loved you like that? And I don't know, maybe for somebody here, December 12, 2021. This very day might be the day that you respond in faith accepting the gift of the Savior who left heaven to come and die in your place to bring you back to God. All you have to do is turn from your sin and place your trust in Him. If you want to do that, please let one of us know before you leave. We'd love to pray over you. That's our lowly Savior. Uh, Let's finish up briefly with just five implications of such a lowly Savior. No particular order. First, uh, an affirmation of dignity. Here's what I mean by that. We live in one of the few areas of the country in which it seems like the top 1% of polished, rich, attractive people seem to have made some sort of agreement to all live in the same place. So for those of us who live on the North Shore but don't exactly fit the polished, rich, attractive mold, that can be a, a crushing weight that we carry almost every day as we walk out the front door and see that our neighbors, up oh, there they have They have more impressive Christmas lights than the ones that we were so proud of. Then we watch them get into more expensive cars than the ones that we drive. Then we bump into them at the gym getting more toned than we can ever hope to be. All that can cultivate a deep sense of insignificance, a questioning of my worth. So I wonder this morning if it's helpful for anyone to be reminded that God gives great dignity to the overlooked and to the poor. That when he sent his own son, he took an unimpressive physical form. It's good news for our dignity that the ideal human was not polished, not rich, not attractive. Maybe even more crucially, though, this provides gospel clarity. Gospel clarity. Gospel. The word just means good news. But our world is filled with counterfeit gospels, isn't it? False narratives that our enemy uses to lure us away from the good news. So if the Savior wasn't polished, wasn't rich, wasn't attractive... That distinguishes what the good news is from at least one version of what the good news isn't. Here's what I mean. Based on what we've seen today, the good news of Jesus Christ can't be this. It can't be Jesus saying, follow me and I'll show you the path to health and wealth and prosperity and happiness. It can't be that. Because God wouldn't have sent a lowly Savior if he wanted to be the means to that end. No, here's a better summary of the good news in Jesus. Jesus saying, I lowered myself to die for you so that if you join me in death, you can also join me in new life. In other words, as we saw so often in Mark's gospel this fall, the call is actually an invitation to leave behind all the polish and the pursuits and the possessions that the world values, to come and die, and in that death to obtain a life that even Sheridan Road magazine couldn't offer. What else? Uh, Power inversion. Power inversion. In a world in which everyone around us seems to be grabbing for power, and in which those in power so often heavy-handedly lord it over those that they are meant to lead, it's shocking what our God does with his power. Reminder, here's the one so powerful that when people catch even a quick glimpse of the outer edges of his glory, it strikes absolute terror into their hearts. That's the God that we're talking about. Yet, he chooses to write the story in such a way that he ends up in a manger, meaning that we have to look down to see him. Carl Jung, who is not a believer in Jesus, told the story of a rabbi who asked another rabbi this. He said he heard this rabbi saying, the God of Sinai might once have thundered, but how can he be found today? In other words... Where's the mighty and awesome God that we were told about? Why doesn't he show up anymore? The second rabbi's response, there's no longer anyone who can bow low enough. I can't improve on Glenn Scrivener's uh, reflection on that conversation. Here's what he says. The rabbi and young spoke better than they knew. Christmas tells us that there is one who has bowed low enough all the way to our gutter. For we who know ourselves to be lost in failure and frailty, we don't merely look up to the majesty who terrifies. In immeasurable grace, our eyes are also turned downward to Emmanuel, the God of the gutter. There in the feeding trough is the God for us. Friend, if if you're beaten down this morning and you're scared to look up at the heavens, at the terrifying God of power that you might find up there, that God is inviting you to look to the manger. That manger is not just the place from which Jesus one day grew up. It's actually the place from which he would one day stoop down, even lower, until he hung on that cross where you and I deserved to be nailed. Two more conviction of favoritism it's all too easy isn't it without even realizing it to start to favor those that the north shore favors to pay attention to the rich beautiful put together folks while ignoring those who are poor or plain those with disabilities those who have had a tough go of it and whose lives are a little messy the world we live in is working hard to disciple us to shape and form us into that sort of favoritism Faithful individuals and entire churches can drift into that if we're not careful. Yet, Jesus didn't check the boxes of what gets someone noticed on the North Shore. Would we have noticed him? And to take it a step further, not only was he likely to be overlooked on the North Shore, he lived constantly on the lookout for others who were overlooked around him. Have we been conformed closely enough to his image, I wonder? That we share that same radar for the overlooked. That our hearts go out to them. That we gravitate in their direction. Finally, contempt for human glory. Contempt for human glory, that's a phrase from Charles Spurgeon. Here's what he said about it. Might be hard to read unless you're watching online. He says, "'Have I not heard of some saying, "'I've been insulted. "'I'm not treated with proper respect. "'I go in and out and I am not noticed.'" I have done eminent service, and there's not a paragraph in the newspaper about me. Oh, dear friend, Spurgeon says, your master humbled himself, but it seems to me that you are trying to exalt yourself. Truly, you are on the wrong track. If Christ went down, 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 it ill becomes us to always be seeking to go up, up, up. If you are now in a place where you are not noticed, where there is little thought of you, be quite satisfied with it. Jesus came just where you are. You may stay where you are, where God has put you. Jesus had to bring himself down and to make an effort to come down to where you are. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where a preacher says something and and, uh, it feels like, how did he know he's talking right to me? This is one of those sermon excerpts for me. As long as I can remember, this is my story. A seeking of glory is something that I've had to battle with since teenage years. But if Christ went down, 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 and actively expended effort to do so, why am I working so hard to climb up, up, up? Friends, when we heard about a Savior, Many of us expect it, polished, rich, attractive. Our Jesus, he turns that upside down. Why? Because he's after something different than what we're all after. It's by his descent into weakness that he's going to make us strong. It's by his descent into poverty that he's going to make us rich. It's by his assumption of unremarkable features that he's planning to make us beautiful. This Christmas season, let's bask. In the good news of our lowly Savior. Would you pray with me? Lord in heaven, who dwells in unapproachable light, who wraps himself in glory, who uh, at whose voice the heavens quake, we praise you that you nevertheless stoop down. You condescended to be One of us. To be born and and laid in a manger where we would be able to look down at you. Helpless. uh, Poor. You entered into our mess to rescue us from it. And we're grateful that you're not a God far off, but a God who drew near. And Lord, as we battle with uh, the struggles in our lives, as we feel discouraged, as we uh, feel defeated by our sin, let this reminder of who you are in your coming down to us be a word of hope for us that sticks in our minds and hearts, that we come back to often, and help us not to shrink back from you in those moments, but to run to you and to cling to our lowly Savior, in Jesus' name. going to respond by first singing what child is this and the song asks